Hey, welcome back, friends, and welcome to another uh, episode where we're going to talk about uh, chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. Lou, thank you so much for setting this up. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, everything you do. <laughs> uh, today, we are going to be talking about uh, verses 14, 15, and 16. And there's two aspects that I want to talk about here. One is the meaning of the verses themselves and what they refer to in the Gita, and then go a little deeper to sort of stimulate your thought process about the world, creation, being, um, Brahman, etc. Oh, so, so it's just, it's a light one today. <laughs> <laughs> it's a light one, yes. Yeah. So let's talk about the three verses first. 14, 15 are usually taken together, but I'm going to lump in verse 16 over here at the same time. So verse 14 says in chapter 3, from food come forth beings. From rain, food is produced. From yajna or sacrifice arises rain, and yajna or sacrifice is born of action. That's verse 14. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I would suggest that each one of you get a copy of the Gita to look at it as we're talking about these verses, because these verses are very short and succinct, but a lot is held in them. And it's easier when you're looking at it, whether it's on the computer or through your own Gita book. And the book that I found, the translation, most ideal is that of Swami Parthasarthi. And we talked about yagna in the last two episodes, episodes uh, 31 and 32, I believe. Correct. Yeah. And it's very important to see that yagna comes up a lot because even in these two sessions, yagna, which is sacrifice, comes up. Now, just as a reminder, what yagna is, is a sacrifice, a communal sacrifice, that what the Gita says is that when you're doing something, instead of doing it for yourself, selfish reasons, do it instead for the community, for nature, for the world, for your fellow human being, for the corporation that you work for, for your family. A larger piece than yourself. Do what you ought to do, not just do what you like or dislike and do it for others. And that is the principle of yajna that keeps coming up again and again in the Gita. So verse 15 says, know that action arises from Brahma, and Brahma arises from the imperishable Brahman. Therefore, the all-pervading Brahman ever rests in yajna, sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And verse 16 says, he who does not follow here the wheel thus set in motion, living in sin and rejoicing in the senses, he lives in vain. So those verses in and of themselves probably won't make sense to a lot of people. But let's, let's look at them. Essentially, what he's saying is that just like we have a dream, where does the dream come from? The dream comes from our own mind, mm -hmm. right? We're sleeping our mind is active from whatever we've been through during the day, then out pops a dream. When you're in the dream, if somebody were to ask you if you were to be able to answer, where did this dream come from? You'd say, it came from me. What are you talking about? My, my, it's me. Right. No, no, it came from another part of you. That's the mind. Said, no, I'm no mind. I'm, I'm 
King Alexander. What right. are you talking about mind? Right. Uh, this is me. You could never believe that the dream came from something else. Right. So similarly, where we're going with this now is where did we as a universe, us as human beings, where did all this come from? From Brahman, which is the totality of space, of, of uh, Brahman is consciousness, existence, bliss, sat, chit, anand. So once there is creation from Brahman, Brahman created what we symbolically and mythologically call Brahma, which is the Lord Brahma. And Lord, there are three gods that Hinduism talks of, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. And Brahma is the creator. Mm -hmm. uh, Vishnu is the maintainer, the one who maintains everything. And Shiva is the destroyer. And what the three gods together are known as the Tatre. So these are mythological gods. They're not really there up in the sky. But basically what it says is that everything is created, maintained, and then destroyed. Right. And that Brahma is the creator. And we can talk more about birth, uh, creation, and then maintenance and uh, destruction as we go along. But from Brahma, who was the god that was created by Brahman, Brahma created the universe and created the world, created us. Mm -hmm. And what this verse says is that from Brahma, when he created us as human beings, action is the first thing that comes out, that each one of us acts. So you may say, what if I'm totally sleeping? I'm not acting. Yes, you are. You're breathing, you're yawning, your cells are multiplying, your cells are you know, uh, destroying some other cells, some other cells are being born. So lots of things are happening. Your food is being digested. Mm -hmm. Lots of things are happening. Things are ha So action is a result. Resting and rejuvenation is an action so that you'll be ready to go the next day to do your other yeah. actions. Yeah. Like I said in our previous sessions, if you say somebody, get up, let's go for a walk, and you say, no, I'm going to keep sitting here, that alone is an action. Right. Refusal, resting, no, saying I'm not going to do it, sleeping, just trying to sit still in meditation, all of these are actions. So he says that basically what we do is we act according to our likes and dislikes. Instead, we should be acting in the spirit of yajna, and that when we act in the spirit of yajna or sacrifice, that rain gets produced and rain then produces food and food then produces further life. So this is an agricultural metaphor because at the time that the Gita was written, it was written basically for farmers who are the majority of Indians mm -hmm. and said, you know, you've got to understand this because the priests and so on were going through what we are going through now, understanding the Gita and the Upanishads from a deeper level. But the farmer, he said, understand that you have to do yajna. The farmers misunderstood it and said that they really have to just go and create this yajna, which is a block of square bricks inside which was fire, and they would just put the bricks there and just say, okay, God, I put the yajna, now make it rain. Yeah. And even to this day, 
there are people in India who do that. When there's a drought, no rain, they create the yagna and they say, okay, good, see, it rained. Yep. These yagnas work. That's a little but too literal. <laughs> literal, right. <laughs> so what he's saying is that when you do this yagna as a sacrifice, if you're working in a car factory, and everybody's working together to create this Tesla, or actually Tesla is a bad example because everything is robotic there. Yep. But in the olden days, the car factories were made by people who worked together. One guy says, I'm going to put the seats in. One guy says, I'm going to put the steering wheel in. Right. I'm going to put the tires in. Each person has a job to do. And if each person does his job properly, the car comes out beautiful. And like that, there's hundreds of cars that are produced that if each person does his duty on this earth in a proper fashion, then there is rain. He doesn't mean literally right. rain as he is when he's talking to the farmers. He's talking about a metaphorical, a symbolic rain, which is material, which is a, an atmosphere of conviviality, an atmosphere of production. The rain is and, all the things, including the work that needs the crops to grow. It's the right. whole the process. Cooperation, so, yeah. the atmosphere yeah. in the factory, everybody's humming yeah. along, you know, saying everybody's happy because everybody's doing work that they should be doing, not for themselves. And as a result, the rain, this atmosphere of conviviality, produces food. And the food really refers to material prosperity and happiness and lack. Of, so you also, if you work in this manner, the second thing that happens, we've discussed this before, is that your vasanas gets burnt off. So if you're doing something cooperatively uh, for the sake of a larger cause, then your desires, your vasanas gets burnt off. And that's another added benefit to this. So that's what really verse 14 means. Now in verse 15, In verse 15, he says, Know that action arises from Brahma, and Brahma arises from the imperishable. Therefore, the all-pervading Brahman ever yes rests in yajna, or sacrifice. What he's saying here is that Brahma produced Brahm, uh, Brahm, Brahman, the all-pervading reality, produced Brahma, the god, the creator, from there produced action. And if you want to get back to Brahman, you have to do it through the spirit of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't get back. What does that mean? He's saying all of us who are born here are born because of our vasanas, our desires. We came to this earth not to fulfill some duty of ours, right. not just to have a good time on earth by fulfilling our senses, but basically to get back to Brahman. That's our duty. That's our purpose on earth. So that in, in the 16th verse, when he talks about the wheel, the chakram, he, that's what he's talking about, is that you want to get back to Brahman. Don't right. forget about that. Otherwise, you're living, as he says, in vain. You're living in sin, meaning all. if you're only looking after your senses, you're wasting your life. So there's a lot to explain here. Mm -hmm. And what... Let's go to the wave, and yep. maybe that's the way we'll do it. <laughs> so Swami Sarvapriyananda belongs to the Vivekanand Society or the Ramakrishna Mission. He's based in New York, and he gives a very beautiful example. He's got a very cute face, and when he tells a story, it's just so wonderful. He says it smilingly and laughingly, very nice. 
He says, in the middle of the ocean, a small wave is born. Initially, it's just a little ripple, then it gets to be a small little wave, and it's floating along in the ocean. And he says, wow, look at me, I'm born, I'm a young wave, as all of us have gone through in our earlier adolescent teenage years. He says, I feel good, life is great, I feel strong, I'm stronger than that wave over there, I'm good, <laughs> full of life, happy. Then he sees another bigger wave, a much bigger wave. He says, whoa, look at that wave. Yeah. He's much bigger, stronger, richer, wealthier, whatever, handsome. He says, I'm jealous. Hmm. So feelings start to arise, right? Feelings of insecurity, feelings of inferiority complex. Then he looks on his other side and he sees a small, tiny wave or just a little sputter of droplets from the wave. And he's has a superiority complex. He says, what is that wave? Nothing. I'm, he's arrogant. <laughs> he develops all kinds of jealousy. If his road as he's going along in the ocean is blocked by something, his desires are blocked, he gets angry because he can't get his way, so he has to go around a different way. So all these emotions come about in this little wave. And as Swami Sarvananda will point out, that he's really talking about us as human beings. Right. This little wave then develops emotions, fears, anxieties, and he's going along his way along the ocean, going towards the shore as all waves go. As he comes closer to the shore, he looks in the distance and he sees big rocks on the shore, as they usually are. And he sees the rest of the waves going and crashing against the rocks and breaking up into spray. And he says to his colleague next door to him, he says, what's that? And he says, that? is death. Hmm. He said, death? What's that? He says, well, you die. You no longer exist. He said, I don't want to die. He says, well, the next thing that happens is another Vedantic wave comes along, because what we're studying is all Vedanta. And the Vedantic wave says, wait, let me explain something to you. He says, that is water. He says, do you know what water is? He says, no, I don't know what water is. He says, water has no superiority complex, no inferiority complex. It doesn't look at other waves like you do and say, that wave is different from me. I don't like him. This wave is the same as me. I like him. This wave likes me, so I like him. This wave doesn't agree yeah. with me, so I don't like him. There's no class differences, nothing like that. Water is water. There's no inferiority complex, no superiority complex. And water is everywhere. You are water. He says, I'm water? He says, yeah, you may think you have a wave, a nice crest, a handsome-looking curve, all kinds of things, but really, the top of you is water, the bottom of you is water, the sides are water, you are water. And water is everywhere, so you are water. And even if you get destroyed on the rocks, you still stay water. Nothing will happen to you. Your name and form and action disappear, mm -hmm. but water never disappears. And then, as soon as the wave realizes that, he becomes immediately, even though he still contains the form of the wave, he's at peace because he knows that he's water. He really sees himself as the infinite, right. the all-pervading, rather than the little wave that he is. So what Swami Sarvapriyananda says is that we should all look at these waves in that uh, ourselves in the same fashion, that we should look upon ourselves as part of Brahman, and that inside us, we every cell has life. It's not a soul like a long, you know, a, uh, smoky, 
image of a soul that yeah. comes out and looks down at the body. Nothing like that. It's basically every cell has life in it. And that life is what Brahman is. That's what Atman is. Difference between Atman and Brahman, by the way, sometimes say Atman, sometimes Brahman. In a pot, if there's space inside, we call it space, but we call it pot space because it's inside the pot. Right. But the space that's in the sky, in the atmosphere, we say is just universal space, space. But it's still the same space. Space in a pot, space outside is still space. Right. Similarly, what's inside us we call Atman, but what's outside is Brahman. Yes. And Brahman is all-pervading. It's everywhere. Yeah. Everything has Brahman in it. And we're the pot. <laughs> <laughs> where the body is yeah. the pot. And inside us is the Atman. So the story goes that before Brahman created anything, it was just all-pervading, everywhere, blank. Mm -hmm. I've often thought, what is God? From childhood, I said, they say God is up in the sky. I said, what about here on earth? What about down in the ground? No, God is up there. What does he look? They keep referring yeah. to God as he, right? They say, is he a man? What does he look like? And as we've talked in our previous sessions about Hindus having so many different versions of gods, they're all images. Hindus only believe in one god, which is Brahman, all-pervading. Not multiple gods, but when I looked at it, all these different gods, I said, where could these gods be? As I studied this, I realized that the Upanishads and all our scriptures talk of Brahman, God, as universal everywhere, omnipotent, all-pervading, and basically very powerful and containing life, consciousness, existence, bliss, and needs nothing, doesn't do anything, doesn't tell us to do anything, basically is all-pervading. But the story goes that this Brahman said, what would it be like to create something, to exist? So he created out of he, Brahman, Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> he created the universe. And the universe then created other stuff. So Brahman created it, and mythology says that Brahman created it through Brahma, that Brahma created this universe, and Brahma created us. Right. And we have action in ourselves. Now, when... Brahman and Brahma created us. He created because he wanted to experience. Brahma said, Brahman says, you know, I don't feel anything. I'm all around over here. I don't feel anything. But as a human being, as a mosquito, as a whatever, I can do things. Mm. And as we as humans start to experience things, we develop vasanas. We say, wow, that is good, what I experienced. Imagine that it's the first life that we took on the earth. You taste a piece of chocolate. You say, I like that. I yeah. want more. You develop a vasana for chocolate or for eating or for other sense organs and pleasures. As your mind develops, you develop an attachment to your loved ones. And you say, I want that. I want more. As your intellect develops, you want fame. You want fortune. You want power. You want reputation. So each one of these aspects, mind, body, intellect, develop vasanas. When we die... Our mind goes, and with it goes the vasanas. 
and that's the causal body, and we come back again to Earth, and each time the vasanas get bigger and bigger. And you say, I'm, I'm miserable like this. I don't want to keep coming back and, you know, constantly feeling that no matter what I get, I'm still not happy. Right. I want to come back to that state of bliss, that Brahman that I was before I came here. So that's the cycle. You started as Brahman, came to life, and became from a mosquito or whatever to ultimately a human, and now you want to get back to being Brahman again. To get there, you say, he says, you have to do yajna. You have to do sacrifice. If you do your actions for another human being, another for nature, for um, the world, then you can get back to being Brahman again. That you get back to self-realization. Now, many may say this is doesn't fit. But if you look back at the stories of many people who have been gone through this, once they get to become self-realized as this wave is, as it's going towards the shore, it's become one realizing that it is now the ocean or water. We, whether it be Buddha or Christ or Krishna, say, I am self-realized. I am Atman. I am Brahman. Those people talk, and they talk as if it's Brahman talking to us. When Christ talks, when Buddha talks, when Krishna talks, as a self-realized being talks to us, it's Brahman talking to us through the voice box that was given to this individual person. And they have said that this is true. I'm not kidding you. This is not yeah. just a story. This is real. So those of us who don't believe say, ah, this is a long story. We have only to read what these masters have achieved, what they've accomplished. And only when you delve deeply into it, when you read up on it, people have said to me, I don't believe in reincarnation. So I actually started studying reincarnation. There's a lot to study. And once you read up on it, you say, there's no doubt that there's reincarnation. But an uneducated person right from the beginning says, there's no reincarnation. I'm a physician. I don't believe in reincarnation. But only when you study it, you say, I can't explain it any other way. All these things, whether it be dying and going and having a rebirth, whether it be the vasanas, whether all these conditions, unless you study, you cannot believe or come up with a different explanation. Most people can't. Yeah. Most people say, there is no Brahman, there is no God. Okay, well, you tell me, how does this happen? And that's not a uh, possible. Most people can't come up with an explanation. Let me wind back around to something you said earlier when you were referring to people with dreams and people think that they created the dreams when uh, people should understand that your mind created your dreams. That's not who you are. That's your mind working. And most people don't separate the mind from who they are, their own consciousness. And in the Gita, what we're talking about is separating yourself, separating the Brahman from the Vasanas. We think the Vasanas are us. We think what we need, what we desire, what we fear is who we are, and it's not who we are. It's just our, it's just our mind. It's our body playing with us. We need to separate and get back from that, right? Correct. Yeah. So in this story of the wave and the ocean, and I think, uh, Lou, if I have something written up, we can put it on yes. the Facebook page. Yep. And in there, at the bottom, the, I, I wrote there that the wave then says, Aham Brahmasmi. In Sanskrit, that means I am Brahman. Yeah. In the Upanishads, it says, Tat Tvamasi. 
Tat Tvam Asi means I am that. Yeah. Three Tat Tvam Asi. I am that. The wave and, thinks he's the wave, and he is, but he's actually water. The bigger correct. picture is he's water. He's not just correct. the wave. And in our case, as the humans, we have not just I am a wave, I am the body, because I look like this, this yep. is what my face looks like, this is what my nose looks like, this is how beautiful I am, this is how, you know, or I am the mind, we identify with the mind to right. say, look how, you know, how I feel, I'm just such a loving person, I'm such a good person, I have such a good family, or I'm the intellect, I'm smart, I'm powerful, right. I'm rich, I'm famous, so we identify not just by being a wave, but we also identify with our body, our mind, our intellect. Is that what you were saying? Yes, and but we need to... Whereas see. we should be identifying with us as Atman or Brahman. Right, and it, it comes down to, as a psychiatrist, I'm sure you've run into this, there's a difference between the statement, I am angry, and I feel angry. I feel angry establishes that you're not angry, you're feeling it. That's what your body and your mind is giving you, and you're separating from it a little bit. And that's a, it's an important separation that we need to make, yeah. right? That's one separation. I'm going beyond that to say now to separate the mind. I'm I'm not angry. I'm feeling angry, which is not really referring to I as the Brahman, but it's really in that case referring to me as a person. Right. But here we are because the Atman doesn't feel any emotions. Right. I don't feel you. you I feel angry refers to the I meaning the small I. But the I, the bigger I, never feels angry, right. never feels happy. No, it's just, it's life. It's just consciousness. So speaking of Tattvamasi, that comes from the Upanishads, come from the Chandogya Upanishad in the sixth, um, sixth verse or the sixth chapter. And in that, the Chandogya Upanishad, this is one of the older ones, it speaks of, father talking to a child and i don't remember the exact words but it goes something like my dear before brahman there was no second before brahman there was no second right he, brahman was the first now as i told you before as i told our listeners before the upanishads are short succinct because they were spoken and then they were expected them to go on forever through the generations. There right. was, wasn't written down on paper or wood or carved on stone. Interesting story. Somebody said, well, why not? I mean, they had stone there. They could carve. They had wood there. They could carve. They actually knew that these are important things that have to be passed down through the generations. They said that there was going to be a great flood. They talked about the Ice Age. They talked about the great flood, they talked about all kinds of destructions that the world, and they said, we can't afford to have something as valuable as this be destroyed. So they said the ideal way of preserving this is not to carve it on a rock or a mountain, because they've done that too. They've yeah. had statues and stuff that goes back thousands of years. But they said the ideal way to preserve this is to teach it to a few hundred uh, students who are highly evolved and then have those students make sure that their families keep reciting it, and this goes on through the generations. And as I said, this still goes on in India, where they keep reciting this. It strikes but, me, as you say that, that writing it down, recording it, would be a um, would be a ritual, as opposed to learning it and repeating it would be an action. Right. Like the ritual wasn't enough, just preserving it, because that can be destroyed, uh, that can be yeah. lost. 
But right. if it's in the heart, if it's in the mind, if it's carried over in the culture, it, it's going to be forever. Correct. Yeah. So this father says to the son, before Brahman, there was no second. Meaning, as I was saying before, Brahman was all-powering, he was everywhere, and there was nothing other than him. So in the description of the universe, what the Upanishad says is that there are three differences. Three differences. Everything has differentiation. So, for example, if you look at my own body, my head is different from my feet. Mm -hmm. It's my body, yep. but one part of me is different from the other. That's one. The second is that within the same species, one human being is different from another human being. Right. One species of tree, the evergreen, is different from a deciduous tree. Very different. The evergreen stays green throughout winter, looks like a Christmas tree. The other one has green leaves in the summer and flowers, but in the winter is uh, nothing there. So one species in the same trees, there's two different kinds of trees. In the same human being, there's two different kinds of human beings. And the third difference is that there are different species. So a tree is not a rock, right? Right. A whale is not a frog. So there's differences. People say, well, how do you know there was no second to Brahman? How do you know there was no second? Well, how, where would there be? Well, maybe there's Brahman in this place and another over there. But in between, there would be space. Mm. And what is space? Spaces exist, so there's nothing between this. Right. So in essence, what he's saying is there is no room for a second. Everywhere is Brahman. So where is the non-Brahman? Right. If everything is Brahman, where is the room for the second? People have said, well, where does this other stuff come from? Now, just as we grow, and in this is in the Upanishads too, that we grow nails, we grow hair. So similarly, the universe comes out with other things, part of it. The spider, <laughs> the spider comes out with a web from its own being. And it says, Brahman created this universe out of him, his own self, like a spider creating his own web. Interesting, yeah. And Swami Sarvapriyananda says that an Indologist specializing in the studies of India studied this and he said, oh, Indians used to pray to spiders. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> so basically, he's saying these spiders, just like a spider can create a web out of his own being, Brahman created the universe. But he's not a spider. He's just giving an analogy of right. a spider. Yeah. But the Indologist says... Hindus prayed to spiders. Not true. Um, so just as trees come out of the earth, just as weeds, grass comes out of the earth, just as hair, nails come out of our body, basically the universe, all beings, all life came out of Brahman and ultimately will go back to Brahman. So was that light enough for today? <laughs> that was a fascinating, it's a fascinating episode. Very interesting. Well, so we're learning today how to complete the wheel. Complete the wheel, right. Yeah. And what uh, verse 16 says, if you just go through life, 
just fulfilling your own likes and dislikes and what you want to fulfill your senses, you're going to be quote unquote living in sin, which right. means just having more mental agitations and aggravations and unhappiness. Instead, do what you ought to do. Give your attention to others, uh, to the community, to nature. Take give back. Give back to nature. Give back to the world. Give back to others. That that is your way back to Brahman. Do what you ought to do. Don't don't forget to take care of yourself or family, but do what you ought to do. And uh, two other thoughts that I have. Nour As I was thinking, nourish the gods, and they will nourish you. Exactly. Yeah. Nourish the gods, and they will nourish you. Good. Good job, Lou. <laughs> Um, when we were in class, when I was in class with Gautam Jain, one guy raised his hand and said, yeah, that's all good. If you're a doctor, you can very well take care of patients all day and you're doing what you ought to do, which is great. You're doing service to the humanity and culture. Right. If you're a nurse, you can do that. If you're a teacher, you're doing good because your future generations, you're teaching them. Sure. But what, I'm a stockbroker, he says. I'm a, I, I go and all I do is gamble. I just say, okay, this is going to go up, this is going to go down, and I make money, and all day that's all I think about. How can I use that for my, how can I make my thoughts be more um, for other people? And what Gautam Jain said to him was, he said, look, you're making money, but the question is, what are you making money for? Mm -hmm. And what will you use the money for? Right. So that's where your heart should be. You're making money is you're doing a job, it's like digging a ditch, but what are you doing with that money? If you're saying, all I'm doing is buying a bigger yacht, right. buying a bigger house, indulging in my own sense pleasures, then you're living in sin. You're basically wasting your life. Um, but if you take that money, be comfortable. Nobody's saying you don't be comfortable. But use some of that money to give back to the community, give back to the world, and you'll get far more satisfaction. And that's basically what this verse says is, you know, get back to Brahman by doing what you ought to do to get back there. Plus, he could work for his clients as opposed to just solely working for himself. Right, yeah. right. Well, this guy was turned out to be a hedge fund operator. Oh, he's, so he, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So he was working for himself and, you know, sharing his wealth with other people. Yes. Um, the other thought is about vacations. How much time have we used up, Lou? We're at 34 minutes. 34, okay. We're okay. So last one, which is vacations. People often say, you know, I go on a vacation and I feel so good. And we need to keep in mind that vacations only feel good because you're really running away from where the stress is, where you perceive the stress to be. Right. You come back and the stress hits you all over again. During that time, you've basically moved away. Whereas... Same thing happens in weekends. Same thing happens on vacations. Same thing happens when you go to a temple or a church. You basically go in there and you say, oh, my God, there has to be something to this because I feel so peaceful in here. Right. And part of the peace, no doubt there's some attribute to the fact that because you're in the temple and you believe that there's goodness here and you're going to be closer to God and all of that, true. But again, it's a mental phenomenon. When you're in that temple, you basically don't think as much about your problems outside. You feel safe. You feel right. secure. And that's why you feel a certain way. But if you stay there for a whole day or two days or three days, at some point you start to worry about what's happening outside and the stress and tension come back to you. So basically, 
the attitude of sacrifice and doing for others is an important one, and that's basically what we talk about in verse 14, 15, and 16. So I hope that has been of some use to you. It's of use to me. I use that in my own life, and I hope you find it useful. Oh, this and was a great episode. I enjoyed this episode a lot. I'm glad. I, I hope it uh, keeps getting better and better throughout as it does. The first two chapters, as I've said before, were more of a foundation for this. And then from here on in starts all of the real uh, meat of the matter. Mm -hmm. Meat is the wrong word in the Gita. <laughs> all right. So everybody, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, the Spotify, we have a Facebook page. That's the Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. Find that on Facebook. You see video presentations of these episodes. You see some other posts that we're putting up about uh, teachings and uh, uh, talks about some of the verses. You'll find those there as well. So make sure. And you can also comment with us, which we enjoy, right? Send us a note, Absolutely. drop us a line, have a discussion. We like that. You can find that on the Facebook page, The Gita, Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. Otherwise, just enjoy us on Apple Podcasts, too. Yeah, and some people, by the way, spell Gita with a G-E-E. -E. In our, if you want to look for us on Facebook, look for The Gita with a G-I, G-I-T-A hyphen Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. And some people have asked, why did you put Memoirs of a Psychiatrist there? And my answer is, two reasons. One is Lou and I started with memoirs of a psychiatrist when I was talking about my own memoirs yes. in my career, how I started and what I did. And one of the biggest changes in my life as a psychiatrist and one which I used to help patients was when I studied the Gita. Yeah. So this was my memoirs. Second reason was that I'm not a Swami. A lot of Swamis, people who've spent their whole lives and given up everything and moved up to the Himalayas. Those are people dressed in orange clothes and who have made a career out of this. Right. They're really brilliant. They're way, way, way higher than anybody, any one of us can uh, uh, ex hope to be. Um, I'm not a Swami. I'm a psychiatrist. And basically, I'm saying these are my memoirs, what I learned, what right. I uh, learned in my classes, and I'm sharing those with you. I also think your perspective as a psychiatrist is extremely interesting here uh, because it takes conventional wisdom and conventional thoughts and what we're all used to, and it creates a liaison to some of these concepts in such a way a Swami can sometimes be, well, yeah, God, he's self-realized. I can't think like him. You, know, you, th you think like we think, so it makes things more accessible for us, I think. I think it's an important perspective. Thank you for saying that. makes me... Uh, want to do this even more, and I'm glad. Otherwise, I think sometimes, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And yeah. my only reason for doing that is to share with others what I've learned so that you can, my friends, go and look for other swamis and learn from them when after I get you to be interested in it. All right, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other podcast outlets as well if you want the audio only, and then the Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist on Facebook for videos of these and other features that we have and also to talk to us. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a nice week.